Good morning. So we're told in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, that for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We obviously have more than two or three this morning, and I'm hoping that you each feel his presence in our worship service, and we welcome your participation. We want to particularly welcome you, or if you are a first-time visitor, because we know you could have been many places and many opportunities for your time this morning. We're glad you chose to worship with us. Hopefully you'll enjoy our service and join us again next week. This time I have Denise Sapp, who has a short notice about our gifts. Good morning. I'm here today to tell you about a little history in our church. I was employed as the church secretary when Michael Anderson was the pastor. One day in 1997, he asked me if I thought we could sell some books in the church and use the proceeds for missions. It seems Cokesbury was offering a deal where we could pick up some books at their store in Phoenix and then return them the next month if they didn't sell. So we decided to try it. We set up a card table full of books between the worship center and the social hall where everyone would have to walk past on their way to coffee on Sunday morning. So we had an official book table. We sold a lot of books. Then a small room next door came available, so we found some unused bookcases and acquired a used display case, and someone donated a cash register, and we had a bookstore. Then we found some catalogs where I could order some small items such as bookends and Christmas ornaments and angel figurines, and we had a gift shop. Now Sandy Neb and I are working in the gift shop. We want to celebrate the 25 years of this ongoing mission project, and we also want to clean out the inventory so we can get some more new stuff. <laughs> For the month of November, you will get 25% off your entire purchase in a gift shop. In addition to that, you will also receive a ticket for a drawing for a gift basket that we will have at the end of November. We will be open between services and after the second service. For those of you who do not know where it's located, just walk through those doors and straight down the hall. You can't miss it. If you don't need to buy a gift today, stop in to say hi and take a look around. We look forward to wait to seeing you there. Thank you, Denise. So we have a number of bulletin items this morning. This month, our mission focus continues to be the Ascend Food Drive, wrapping that up. And we're also looking at Sidewalk Sunday School and I Help. You'll be hearing more about those shortly. Jesse Washington is being featured in a vocal musical on November 13th at the Iron Oaks Country Club Ballroom, our adult and family ministries. Yes, there he is. Our Adult and Family Ministries is presenting a comedic murder mystery thinner theater experience on November 19th. Tickets are on sale. We have our Live in Faith Everyday group Bible study on Tuesday mornings. And the CUMC Women of the Word meeting is every second Tuesday of each month. And that is this Tuesday. We had a jurisdictional conference this week and elected three new bishops. We ask that you welcome them and pray for them. And finally, we have a number of church items in the bulletin. We ask that you participate in those items. It is very full this week. Welcome. And may you feel Christ's love this Sunday as you worship with us and go about your business during the week.
Good morning. Could the children please come forward for children's time? All the children. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? It's bright up here. Good morning. Oh, I got cut on Halloween on the door. It's not a good one, though. It was bleeding all over on Halloween. It's very authentic. Good morning and welcome to worship. We're glad you're here. Well, we're already in the month of November. Three weeks from now is what? Thanksgiving, huh? Thanksgiving is almost here. And then we go right into Christmas, right? Man, the holidays are coming. So Thanksgiving is coming. And so in the month of November, is a good time to, to pause and remember what we're thankful for. We really should do that every day because God blesses us in many, many ways. But this scripture verse that I think about every November, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Be thankful. We have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? Just stop and think for a minute. Think of all those things that you're thankful for. You got them in your head? Sometimes we forget. So a good thing to do in November is to write them down so you remember them. So we're going to get a little packet like this with these leaves. And on those leaves, you can write things that you're thankful for. So each day, gather with your family, maybe around the dinner table or in the morning, whatever works best for your family, and write something that you're thankful for on the leaf. And then at the end of the month, as you gather with your family and friends for Thanksgiving, you can display these on the table or maybe on the counter. And this is a reminder of all the things you're thankful for. Well, I started some leaves here, so let's see what I wrote so far. All right, so... So you just write down there. So what do I got in there? Books. books, right? Yeah, I love books. Love to read. Great story. Who got there? God's love. Yeah, remind them of God's amazing love for us. What is that one? Family. Yeah, thank God for our, my family, for my wife, for my, my daughter, and all my family members. All right, what about this one? The Piper. That's my dog. I call him the Piper. That's right. I'm thankful for my dog. Thankful for mentors. And then the one last one I wrote this week. I wrote this one on Wednesday. What did it say? Singing. All right, so I was here Wednesday doing some work, and the choir was practicing, and I heard them warming up, and I heard them singing parts of the song, and you hear all these different parts of the song. But then I came in right as they gathered to sing the final version. It was absolutely beautiful. And so I listened to it, and the thing that I realized as they're singing, it wasn't just one voice, but it was all these voices coming together to make this beautiful song that they could sing during worship as, as an act of worship to God. It was beautiful to listen to. It was. And so singing is one of the things I'm thankful for. So will you take these home this week and fill one of these out each day? And if you run out of pages, come back and get some more leaves from me. And then on that Thanksgiving day, lay them out so your whole family can see all the things that you're thankful for because God blesses us in many, many ways. All right, let's pray and we'll go to Sunday school. Dear God, Thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for all your blessings. And all God's children said. And all God's children said. Amen. Amen. Please stand as you're comfortable and able and join in the opening hymn. Oh, I got it now. I'm a little slower. Oh 
deadly pestilence. Be thy strong arm, our sure defense. Thy true religion in our hearts increase. Thy bounteous goodness nourish us in peace. Refresh thy peace.
Good morning. I'm Bonnie Britton, and I'm part of your missions team. This month, we're looking ahead to Christmas. Our missions team is asking you to help with Sidewalk Sunday School and iHelp. We have red bags for Sidewalk Sunday School, stockings to fill along with a $15 gift card for single men and women from Save the Family, and $15 gift cards for our iHelp guests. Red bags will be in the hallway by the gift shop between services. Details of what and how you can give to each of these is in your bulletin. I'd also like to call your attention to an insert in your bulletin. We're asking for each of you to set aside some time today to pray for Ukraine. The prayer included in the bulletin was provided for us by Reverend Mel Muchinsky, and it's published in the Desert Southwest Conference UMC blog, which is also in your bulletin if you want more information. And I want to thank you all for your continued generosity. So this is the third week of our 2022 Fall Stewardship Campaign. This campaign will go on to a Pledge Sunday on November 20th. As of October 31st, we have received 14 cards totaling about $50,960. So there are pledge cards in the rear of the church, in front of all church entrances, as well as on the church website. We ask that you pick up one of these cards. If you have not already, take it home, pray over it, study it, Think about what God is doing in your life and the life of this church. As you consider pledging, I would like to give you three more reasons why you should do so. First, giving to the church allows us to share with those in need. Matthew 25, 40 tells us, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The least of these refers to the sick, the poor, the mentally and physically disabled. And this church has a vibrant history of helping others. Second, giving to the church supports the mission of the church. We're told in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is often called the Great Commission. This is important because people need to know Jesus personally, as Romans 10 states, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Third, pledging focuses our priorities. Jesus calls us to focus on giving ourselves to the things that matter, what matters to you. Putting God first in your finances will strengthen your faith. Not only does the way you use your money say a lot about you, what you value and find important, but choosing to put God first with your finances even when it's hard, is a fantastic way to grow your faith. God does not judge us on how much we give. He only asks that you give with a generous heart and without pressure. Please prayerfully consider these points and complete a pledge card. In honor of All Saints Day, I'm going to read the names of those that we have lost this year. As I read these names, and Julie rings the bell, I want you to think about them 
and the impact that these people and their lives have had on us and the spirit that still remains here. If you have other names of others that have lost uh, that we don't have, please feel free after I've finished to come up and add their name and we'll also ring a bell for them as well. Shirin Shand. Charles Brewer. Jeff Trimble. Jim Poole. Carol Venberg. Carolyn Holler. Joyce Hamick. will come forward for the reception of God's tithes and our offerings. Christ has broken down the wall. Christ has broken down the wall. Let us join as one Christ has broken down the The scripture this morning is found in Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 3. Please stand as you are comfortable and able. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And the people said, thanks be to God for the gift of scripture. I want to welcome everyone to worship, and that means you who are in person, but I also want to acknowledge those who 
have managed and figured out and started to become comfortable with worshiping online, uh, uh, tuning in, sitting on your couch, and uh, uh, letting that be a place of worship. I want to say uh, worship is when we bring all that we have and all that we are into the presence of God and uh, sometimes that is live streaming. If, if this is your first time uh, worshiping as part of the congregation at Chandler United Methodist Church, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, uh, later in the service, and this is for the folks at home, uh, later in the service we're going to celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion and I want to invite you to uh, get ready for that, uh, uh, to prepare for your table becoming the table of the Lord and, and gathering whatever is at hand. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, gathered what was at hand, and that became his supper, his Lord's supper. He had bread, he had wine. Uh, whatever snap of cracker you have and and grape soda would be fine. Or if you don't have grape soda, orange soda is fine. Mountain Dew, water. It, it, that's not what's important. It's, it's letting your table become the table of the Lord and joining in the meal. And whatever is at hand will be fine. We are now into a series of sermons about human sexuality, and it has gotten progressively harder each week because we have been we've discovered that some scripture has been incorrectly interpreted and sometimes willfully held on to being incorrectly interpreted uh, some scripture has been erroneously included uh, at the expense of our sisters and brothers and moms and dads and aunts and uncles who would fall into the LGBTQ community. And, and, and some of you have pulled me aside and said, this is really hard to acknowledge, and this is really hard to emotionally handle, because we grew up knowing that the Bible was the Word of God. And to hear that, well, maybe that might not be quite exactly easy to say now, uh, um, is hard. Uh, and uh, so I want to, well, really continue down this road. And a, a very brief overview, hitting some high points through history that I hope can help us sort out where we are and, and how we got here. So we're going back to the beginning. By the time that Jesus walked the earth, the Hebrew Bible already was set. It contained 39 books of the Old Testament. How many of you memorized the Old Testament books? Remember, some of you did that. How many of you could still say all those books? No? Yeah? I bet if you worked at it, it would come back pretty quickly. Uh, uh, that, that was established, and, and that was a huge commitment. Every synagogue had a set, but scrolls are heavy, and there was no such thing as printing in the time of the Old Testament. And, um, but those 39 books were what Jesus referred to in the Gospels as the Scriptures. In the years immediately after Jesus, the entire faith history 
was oral. The entire experience of Jesus was an oral tradition uh, validated because the only people who were permitted to speak it were the people who had lived it. And then the question came, uh, some of us are starting to die off who experienced this. Uh, how do we carry forward? And, and the decision was made that those who had been closest to the disciples could carry it forward. And then there came a little bit of history of if you told it wrong, if you told it in a way that the crowd did not like, they would shout you down. And uh, that became part of the oral tradition. It also was rather dangerous in those first few years to write it down uh, because you were Jewish, but then you were also a follower of Christ and, and the old guard in the temple didn't really like this new guard. And so there was a lot of fighting and then there was killing. And we've all heard of Rome and some of us have been to Rome and we've seen how the Christians were treated. And, um, and then after the early churches were founded, some people, some of the remaining uh, disciples uh, started to write down what they recalled, like, like Mark organized a gospel and the first one written about 30 years after Jesus had died. Uh, and then Matthew wrote one a few years later, wrote down what he remembered, and, and those became known as the Gospels. And then a few years later, church leaders like Peter and Paul wrote letters to churches about different aspects of their ministry. And uh, those, we, we call those the epistles. And uh, eventually those were replicated and circulated to, to other churches in other regions. And, and then some other people got motivated and got excited and said, well, I've had an experience of the Lord. And they started writing things down. And it wasn't very long until there were hundreds of books in circulation and use by the early church. And, and letters written and, and explaining the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, there was the Gospel of Thomas, which has Jesus uh, getting angry as a child and killing a boy on the beach. They were playing together, they were jostling. This boy displeased Jesus and Jesus strikes him dead. That's the Gospel of Thomas. Very bothersome, so, so how do we incorporate that into our faith? Uh, um, and it became, and, and some of the letters were incredibly moralistic and, and some were fantastical and trying to explain different aspects of, of the ministry and the life and the birth of Jesus. And uh, uh, it became clear that some of these writings needed to not, were not authentic, shall we say. And, um, church leaders began to ask, well, well, we're getting these coming around, they're heavy, and they're not always hard to transport, but we're getting them, what, what should we, which one should we be following? And uh, which one should we ignore? And uh, eventually, uh, uh, church leaders began gathering to answer some of these questions and sort out what should be in a, a scripture book and, and what should not. And, and there were several gatherings, the Council of Nicaea, 
in 325, and uh, the first council of Constantinople in 381. You understand how long it took to get word to all the church leaders and then to arrange everybody to come to a place, and then they would be there for weeks at a time, and there would be arguing between different people, and, and it, it would be incredibly political, but they got together trying to decide how to decide if a book or a letter should be included, classified as sacred scripture. And they came up with a, a three-point criteria. A, a book could and uh, be classified as scripture if first it was written by a direct witness to Jesus' ministry, like Peter, or uh, someone who interviewed witnesses to, to Jesus' ministry, like Luke. Number two, if it was written in the first century at least, the closer to Jesus that it was written, the better. Because long after, after, after Jesus had gone and after all of his original followers were gone and even some of their followers were, the, the, the books started to just get weird. Uh, the, the, the first decades of the church were included. Um, if it, and then the third criteria, is the book or letter being considered consistent with other portions of Scripture, known to be valid? Uh, meaning that, that if you're bringing an idea here in this letter that stands counter to everything, that we, th then we can't include that as a trusted element of Scripture. Um, it took a long time, and by a long time I mean decades, for all of these leaders to get together enough times to work it out and fight it out. And, and it was, as I said, an incredibly political process. And um, it wasn't until about 400 CE of the Common Era uh, that these newly classified scriptures were pulled together and they were published by a saint called Jerome uh, in a compilation called the Bible. And then, very interestingly, uh, all of the source material disappeared. It, 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 where is it? Uh, and so, after that publication, all we had was that publication. And, um, uh, and it's not like everybody could run out and buy a copy. <laughs> and, and begin Bible study and become biblically literate, uh, there were uh, several challenges to that. Uh, the, the first is scrolls are heavy. And uh, it was another 1,100 years. This is 400 of the Common Era. Uh, it was another 1,100 years before the printing press became mechanized enough to do anything resembling mass printing. That, that's a, a couple problems there. Um, and, and then, even then, printing uh, was quite an investment. Uh, the books were expensive. And, and here's the other problem. Most people couldn't read. I mean, a vast majority of the population couldn't read. A very small number of people. Uh, and they relied on coming to church and a priest telling them what the Bible said and, and then also what it meant. 
In the 1500s, there were a number of Bibles. After the printing press became mechanized to pull this out, there were a number of Bibles that were printed. There was the Great Bible, there was the Bishop's Bible, there was the Geneva Bible, and then there was the King James Bible. Each of which, each of which was commissioned by a, a powerful person. And what was printed in each of these Bibles depended on who commissioned it and who compiled it and who printed it. And it was then in the 1600s that thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and Benedict Spinoza and Richard Simon got their hands on copies and started to read them and began to ask some questions like, who wrote these books? And, and why does this story sound like this story told from a different perspective? But, and then the 1700s, the, there were some Germans that, that began to ask that, that question too. But there was no source material to study and, and there was nobody really that knew a whole lot to tell anybody anything. I mean, priests had some education, enough to read, and then they would get somebody to pay their salary and they would be in a community and they would be the educated one. Uh, there was no real biblical knowledge uh, among the priests. Um, it was in the 1800s that uh, some people began looking at uh, uh, Authorship, trying to figure that out from what they were reading in Scripture and, and trying to look at audience and purpose. and They're just scratching the surface for something deeper. This is the beginning of biblical scholarship, but it was risky business uh, because from the beginning, church authority made it clear that this was their turf, and it was holy, and it was unquestionable. This is the word of the Lord. You're questioning the word of the Lord? What? How could you dare? And for many, God became the answer that was given when they ran up against the unknown. Why is the sky blue? God wanted it that way. Why am I a serf? working under this sheriff, because God wanted it that way. Why did my brother die in the disease that swept through the village last year? God wanted it that way. Your, your brother must have sinned. Uh, it's God's design, it's God's will, it's God's punishment. God became the default answer when folks didn't have better ones. Uh, and for church leaders to have all of those answers questioned, <laughs> it was a threat. And they extended, they exerted incredible control, church leaders did. It was only in the 1800s that enough force apart from the church came together and entire fields of science finally began to take shape. Physics and biology and botany and zoology and archeology span and anthropology and astronomy and geology and medicine, kind of an age of discovery came into being. 
It was not until 1849 that Dr. Robert Bentley Todd introduced the idea that the human brain functions through an electrical charge, of a force of electricity. And he was hypothesizing that electrical discharges in the brain may be the cause of seizures in some people. And we think, wow, what a great eye-opening. That's insightful, a step toward understanding epilepsy. Wow. That's not what the church said. What the church said was uh, everyone knows that seizures are a sign of someone possessed by demons. And there were clergy and entire churches that were formed around inciting the fear of demons in people and defending against demons and organizing against demons and casting out such demonic possession when it was happening. The church, (laughs) the church led the way in discrimination and stigmatizing people with epilepsy. In this country, our hands are not clean at all. Most states had laws on the books and enforced them, prohibiting people with epilepsy from getting married. Some states had uh, forced eugenic sterilization in the early years of the last century. Businesses could deny service to people who had epilepsy. That didn't go away until the 1970s. In 1859, Charles Darwin introduced his observations of natural selection and introduced the idea of evolution and it caused terrible divisions in churches. Big fight, big fight. That and electricity. The 1920s marked the decade when electricity came to the country and cities started to electrify every neighborhood and churches left. Churches departed over electricity. Well, electricity allows people to be up at night and people up at night do terrible things like dance. And dancing is not okay. Uh, My great-grandfather was a geologist for Gulf Oil. He was in China during the Boxer Rebellion. He and my great-grandmother returned to this country, and they found a home, and they found a church, and they became a part of it. And it wasn't long after that, 1921, they were asked to leave that church because my grandfather, the geologist, asked all the wrong questions. In 1925, the Scopes trial. Remember the Scopes trial? Some of you probably were not alive for that, but uh, uh, the Scopes trial pitted the church and church authority and the Bible against science and evolution in a court of law. It was not until the darkest days of the Second World War, 1943, write that one down, impress that in the back, 1943, Pope Pius XII 
witnessing the incredible brutality and senseless suffering of the Second World War, thought that new insight could be found by exploring origins and history and context of Scripture. His rationale was, there seems to be a great deal of suffering in Scripture. Perhaps they could teach us if we understood it better. His 1943 encyclical opened the door of the Vatican libraries for biblical scholarship. <laughs> the Vatican had all of those ancient source documents and more. And I tell you this because I want you to see that almost all the stuff, almost everything that we know about Scripture, the entire field of biblical scholarship has come into existence only in the last 80 years. Some of you were born before 1943 in your lifetime. And if not you, maybe your father and mother's lifetime. 80 years we've had the source documents and been able to work with them. And since an entire career of a biblical scholar might be spent exploring and sorting out a very small aspect of Scripture, progress has been slow. I also told you this because I, I want us to be careful how we think and talk about all of those generations of people from the very first days of the post-Christ church until now. All those generations of people who passed on what they had been told, what they inherited, what they knew, what did they understand? They're not stupid people. They just didn't know. They couldn't know about the sourcing of Scripture. And, and I will tell you, I will push against anyone who refuses to engage in biblical scholarship. I, I, those who defend ignorance, those who refuse to evolve their thinking, but I will defend vociferously anyone who is trying, who's trying to reconcile this, trying to bring themselves along and, and come along in a way that can make sense to them. To say that this journey is difficult is an understatement. <laughs> Let me also tell you, it's only been in the last 20 years, really 15, that databases and online lexicons have been complete enough to be of any assistance in speeding up biblical scholarship. And I also have to tell you, biblical scholarship has been around. There have been people scratching at the surface. There have been people asking all the wrong questions. And, and not everyone really leans into biblical scholarship. Uh, Christian fundamentalism has been departing from Christianity since the 1920s. And I think this is the most important split that has happened in the church uh, between those who want to acknowledge and incorporate scholarship and discovery and, 
and a new understanding and, and people willing to examine how we know what we know and what we know and what the original author said and, and, and people who expect their pastors to be engaged in that, at least hip deep. Expect their pastors to be informed about what they're talking about in the discipline of biblical scholarship. Separation of that from people who do not want that. And what stuns me is that in this country, if you want to be a teacher, a financial planner, a land surveyor, a dentist, a cosmetologist, an engineer, a nurse, a plumber, a lawyer, a scientist, a building contractor, a counselor, an electrician, or an airplane pilot, you enter into the discipline, you encounter training, you undergo tests, you pass classes, you are certified then as knowing what you're talking about. And the core material is continually updated to reflect the latest and last and most updated best information for best practices. And you must engage in continuing education to stay current or you lose your certification. In churches? Not this one, not the United Methodist Church, but in a lot of churches, people with no knowledge of biblical scholarship, anybody with a Bible and an ego can start preaching. A Bible printed in English, a language that didn't even exist when the events of, of, of the Bible were happening. They can stand up and with great boldness pick out an individual scripture and pull it out and, of, of the text and unknowingly dissect it from their position in the 21st century. And they can vociferously uh, assert that they're proclaiming the word of the, the inerrant word of the Lord. And, and further, in a stunning to me, that entire professions, whose entire professional lives are spent exploring and more deeply understanding and documenting and then submitting articles about what they've discovered uh, in progress to, to peer review, like the American Medical Association, like the American Psychological Association, like the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and many, many more. Whole organizations whose professionals with years of experience have come to understand that human sexuality is part of a person's DNA. It's how we're put together, how we're knit together mysteriously in the womb. It's part of who we are. And trying to deny that or repress that causes terrible outcomes. It, it's time for us to allow God to be a whole lot more than the default answer given when we don't know what we're talking about. Science, science doesn't stand against God. Science is the method by which we understand and try to explain as best we can right now 
and explore and understand more deeply tomorrow how God's world works. And as comfortable as they are to hold, it's time to set aside those uninformed, outdated absolutes that everybody knew. It's time to stop equating familiar and comfortable with sacred. Because those equations bring judging and diminishing and discriminating and stigmatizing how someone was created. What, what blows me away is that an uninformed pastor stands up in a church with no education, citing scripture they don't understand in a language that was written to them. And they say the Bible says, and suddenly all of those other professions and all of those other insights and all of that are discounted and discarded and authority is granted and voice given to someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Jesus said it, and I will repeat, Paul said it, and I will repeat it. Judging others is dangerous business. Attacking someone, diminishing someone, excluding someone based on who they are costs lives. And words matter. I know this is hard. It's hard to let our scripture be pulled into the 21st century. But here's how we do it. What we trust, the promise of the God which we worship, is that all of us are God's creations. All of us as we are. Tall and short and thin and wide and hairy and bald and sharp and dull and lefties and righties and gay and trans and straight with eyes and skin of all colors. The way that we were knit together in the womb. God created that. God values that. God includes that. God welcomes that. God gifts that. God sends that. And God does not take kindly to anyone who says different. Hmm. You know what, let me just, let me just take it. All of that on a communion Sunday, huh? <laughs> sometimes the word comes, sometimes the word comes, and we find ourselves welcomed to a table we did not expect to be welcomed to. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. You are welcome I'd invite you to take out the bread.
Jesus said to 12 disciples, this is my body and it is broken for you. Eat this and remember me. To 12 disciples, Jesus offered a cup. He said, this is my lifeblood and it's poured out for you. Drink this and remember me. We rely on a pouring out of the Holy Spirit to feed us through our days and move us through our lives. We worship not the scripture that we've inherited. We worship not the church that we love. We worship the God of all times. Amen. to be more.
justice and joy. For just and unjust a place at the table, abuser abuse with need to forgive. In anger, in heart, a mindset of mercy, for just and unjust, a new way to live, and God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice. Justice and joy. <clears throat> For everyone born a place at the table to live without fear and simply to be. To work, to speak out, to witness and worship for everyone born the right to be free and God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy yes God will delight when we are creators of justice Justice and joy. Ah, to be the church in this time at this place is a beautiful thing. May the Spirit of God who inspires our hearing go before you to show you the way behind you to nudge you forward when you don't know which way to move. Above you to watch over you, beside you to be the only friend you've got, and within you that you might know peace. Go always in the peace of Christ. Amen. There is a candle in every soul, some brightly burning, some dark and cold there is a spirit who brings a fire ignites a candle and makes its home carry your candle run to the darkness seek out the helpless confused and torn hold out your Sure.